And you know what? I saw this picture of God hanging on the cross with blood dripping down him from his hands, from his head, from everywhere. And I remember looking at this picture going, oh my gosh, the reality of it actually hit me for the first time of what he, what he meant and what he was. And God spoke to me that day and said, you know what? I forgave you. I hang here for you. Now you need to forgive because I hang here for your father, for your mother, for your grandfather, for your ex-husband. I hang here for them too. And I never realized that until that moment in time when I saw that picture. I never thought they were worthy enough for forgiveness. I never could have imagined. And I just said, okay, God. Lynette Samaniego was abused, neglected, raped at six years old, abandoned, homeless, an addict, and suicidal, all before she was 18. Today, she shares that journey and the incredible way God broke in to put her on the path to healing and ultimately to ministry. Welcome to A Stronger Faith, a podcast that puts you in the arena with experiences that have changed people's faith and reveal the presence of God. Today, Lynette Samaniego shares her amazing story of healing from the depths of spiritual misery. Meet Lynette Samaniego. I'm going to want to say this a bunch of times. You're so funny. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, Lynette Samaniego. Is that good? That's very good. All right. <laughs> well, um, I am glad to have you here. We talked briefly. We had a guest on here that turns out was a good friend of yours. And when they left, they said, you've got to contact Lynette. So we connected through this friend and um, met for coffee. Yes. I met you and your son, Dylan, and we had a nice time. Uh, they closed us down. Uh, we closed them down, I guess it was. <laughs> it was a coffee shop. And uh, we had a great conversation. And uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank nice you. To, for, glad you had me. Yeah. And and since that time, I've run into other people that know you. And they're like, wow, you got Lynette. And I'm like, yeah. So I'm really looking forward to it. And I think we just should jump right in, if that's okay. good with you. That's great. For, mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we talked the other day, I, I left the place with my mouth open. Like, I, and, I, and I say that for this reason. Most faith stories that I hear, spiritual journeys, whatever you want to call them, tend to involve some sort of introduction to religion. Maybe they inherited it or whatever, but some sort of ups and downs in life. And, you know, maybe there's been uh, a rough thing or two that's happened, but there's been some sort of search for truth. And it's, it's been something that people have had to grapple with, but that's not how yours hit me. Yours... Yours was much more intense than that, to say at least. It, 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 was, it was less of a wrestling match and, and trying to wrestle with the truth. And yours was more like a, I don't know, an all-out brawl with blood and broken bones and miraculous healings and victory from the jaws of a turbulent and nearly fatal defeat. I mean, it just seemed, it seemed way more intense than most spiritual journeys or the spiritual life or coming to spirituality 
is for most people. And now you spend most of your time in some of the toughest trenches and have since those times with people in similar battles, whether it be prisoners, emotionally or behaviorally disturbed kids, uh, addicts, to name a few, in some of the places that's not the easiest to reach. And, uh, you know, and I know a lot of things have happened that have shaped who you are now. And God has clearly shown himself to you. So how did it start? In 1989, um, I ended up in a, a psychiatric ward in a mental hospital. And I was a drug addict and an alcoholic, and I had suffered a stroke from my addiction. And um, walking down the hall of that mental hospital, I was very angry. I was a very angry young person. And I um, more or less wanted to know why I ended up there. Why was my life literally in shambles? Why was I a shattered person? Because I was a shattered person at that time. And it seemed like every step I took... I began inside me to curse the person that had harmed me over the years of my life. And I was very, very, very angry that night. I had, I had a belief in God, but not that a, I thought God would not harm children and people, that that was not possible. So therefore, the things that happened to me, I, I blamed myself. I thought it was all my fault because these things happened to me in my life. And um, that began a long journey of me searching of what had really happened to me as a ch- from my childhood on to that night when I entered that mental hospital. Wow, that's heavy. So what happened in your childhood that got you to that point? Um, I was born into an abusive home. I was born to parents. My father um, was a very rageful man, very big man, and a very rageful, angry man. And I really never understood that as a child. And my mother was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But she couldn't love her children. She kind of, to me, walked around with blinders on. And if she didn't see it, it didn't happen. She was extremely emotionally detached as a mother. So um, if I could paint a portrait of that in my parents, that's the parents that I have. I did not realize as a child the depth of hurt that my father had until I was an adult. And... um, I guess as a child, you're not supposed to know that. You're supposed to know that he's your dad. and um, yeah. But that's not quite the picture that was given to me as a child. I, I didn't really know my mother. I knew that she was extremely emotionally abandoned me as a child, and I, I didn't know why. And that's when I began to blame and doubt myself as a child. I was given no value as a child, no value at all, no self-worth. And unfortunately, I carried that with me most of my life. Mm. And um, <clears throat> I wanted to understand my father, and this is something that I did know of him. In high school, he was a great football player. Grew up in Southern California, big, huge man. Went to a private uh, Catholic school in uh, Pasadena, California, and um, he was a star. He was just a star. He was good-looking. He was everything. And my mother was a drop-dead gorgeous. Um, worked at the count- the makeup counter at a very, very renowned department store in Pasadena, California. And that's kind of how their worlds met. And here you have this beautiful football player and this beautiful woman, and that's what happened. Well, on a, they weren't married yet, they were dating, and they were on a uh, 
little ski trip. We had a cabin in Big Bear, California on the mountain range, and they went snowing tobogganing. And um, prior to this, my father was scouted out by the Los Angeles Rams in 1950. And um, he had a great opportunity to go to the Los Angeles Rams. Well, through that snow little vacation trip, the toboggan was going down a hill. It was going to hit a tree. And um, my mother was in the front and someone was between some, him and my father. And he put his leg out to stop it from hitting the tree. And it snapped his leg back. Mm. And they hit the tree. And my mother was you know, hurt and damaged. And my father, unfortunately, lost his football career in, in, a, in a second. And I think their woes and their hurt brought more compassion to each other to um, stay together. I think he felt bad. I think my father blamed himself all of his life, you know, for what had happened. And he wasn't this career football player that he wanted to be. And he was angry. He was angry at everything that had happened to him, you know, and he was young. And um, I think that's what formed my father to be such an angry, rageful, mm. mean person. I think kind of in all of that, he blamed my mother and my mother blamed him. You know, it became a, you hurt me, so I'll hurt you back. Well, in the process, he, they hurt five children. So did this happen? Was there abuse for all the all the kids? As far as we can recollect, yes. All five of us, yes. This was physical abuse? Physical, mental, emotional. Yeah. My mother abandoning, literally. She had her specials. Some were favorites. I was not. I was told very often I was um, too much trouble to deal with. Therefore, I was just kind of shunned. I think my father more or less took me under his wing knowing I was, I was extremely um, tough as a child, <laughs> very tough like my father. I had that brute toughness that um, little girls didn't have, but I had it. Did they stay together? No. Um, unfortunately, the other abuse that I suffered, unfortunately, at the hands of my grandfather was um, I was molested. I was raped as a child. And this was my father, my mother's father. So things made more sense to me as I grew up and why my mother was so distant mm. Because obviously, I'm assuming that it had also happened to her. Never talked about it, never discussed it. But as we grew up as adults, me and my sisters are like, yeah, we kind of put two and two together. But my parents divorced very when I was 12 years old. It was unimaginable anymore in our home. You know, the abuse, the hurt, the pain, we all began to abuse, hurt each other. That's all we knew, you know, was to, to be mean and to be hateful. I was a very, very, very depressed, very, very angry little girl. I was. And I liked to fight a lot. Fighting seemed to keep me, keep things at bay that I could control it. So I would fight you if you hurt me, if you said anything, if you did anything. And I was really kind of, I guess, unmanageable as a, as a little, as a child. How did this translate into your teenage years? Oh, whoa. <laughs> um, you know, at 12 years old, um, my father went away and left us for another woman, which he had done quite often in our life. And that's, we knew that. And um, my mother went away with another man, which was all new to us because we didn't know that part of my mother. And um, neither one at the time really wanted me in either one of their families. And so I ran away. I just left one day, and um, I just took off from the only home I had ever known. I had friends I'd stayed with and this and that, ended up in the streets a lot. And at 12, almost 13 years old, I started getting high in the streets. That's what um, led me to my addiction, was a very, very young age. And I knew that getting high at the time 
took away some of the pain. It took the ease off the pain that I was trying to deal with, the deal with abandonment, the deal with the abuse, and, and unfortunately, the deal with nobody wanted me. I became nothing to many, many people. I slept in um, Bob Park Field dugouts, things like that, you know, met people in the streets. At 13 years old? Mm-hmm. In Southern California. How are you surviving? You do what you have to do to survive. Was this a a, a temper a two week thing? Did you have family or friends that you could that you stayed with? It wasn't two weeks. It was two years. On the streets, mm-hmm. homeless at thirteen and fourteen mm-hmm. years old. Mm-hmm. That's unimaginable. But it's a reality of what today is in our society, unfortunately, and it yeah. happened to me. And I had to learn to take care of myself. And I often wondered many, many, many times. <laughs> Do they know I'm cold? Do they know I'm hungry? Do they know I'm lost? Do they care about me? Do they think about me? Because no one ever really looked for me. And I think it broke me. Something inside broke me deeply. Because I thought I was a nothing. I felt like I was just, I just went away one day and they just thought, good, she's gone. I didn't really know how they felt and why they never wanted to find me. That bothered me for a long time. Um, but I believe God has a way in our life, no matter what circumstances we're in, to um, find a way in our life. And I did one day. I I saved a quarter. I had a quarter in my pocket. And I wanted to go back to this store that we li- when we lived, there was a store there that sold a special candy bar that I wanted. And I couldn't find it, but I knew it was at that store. So one day, I went back to that store. I made my way back to where I used to live. And I went in that store and... Um, Oh my God, I heard my father's voice. <laughs> I turned around and said, Dad, what are you doing here? Absolutely in shock and amazement. It had been years. He goes, Lynette Louise, I've been looking for you. Where have you been? And I was blown away because I didn't think anybody really cared. And I said, Dad, you know, and um, we had a moment and we talked and he said, well, I'm remarried now. And I'm like, okay. And I was 14, going to be 15 years old. And he says, I want you to come home with me now. And I was oh, no, Dad, you know, I don't want to do that. You know, I didn't know this marriage he had, this life, this woman. I didn't know anything, you know. I knew that um, my parents broke up because it was all our fault. And we were told we were bad children. And Mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine he had another wife and children. And I thought, well, they must be good then because we weren't good, you know, good children. And so... um, I had to really think about things and count the cost. And I thought that day I would go home with my dad. I needed, I needed a break. I was tired. I was exhausted from the streets. I was tired. I was beat down. I was thin. Unfortunately, I'd become ill with mononucleosis that I didn't know until I went to my father's house and I had to go to the doctors and everything. And um, I met my stepmother. <laughs> Another lifelong journey of someone who did not like me very well and made it very well known every day of my life how much she did not like me mm. and how I wasn't really welcome in their home. And sh- she had a daughter, my, my, my stepdaughter, Wendy. And um, Wendy was very young. Wendy was only two years old when my father found me again, and I went to go live with them. And um, my stepmother just couldn't quite grasp the thought that, you know, my dad had another daughter and that I was coming into their life because that was not her life. Mm-hmm. Therefore, as far as she was concerned, I, I was not welcome in their life. 
But um, I stayed because I didn't want to be cold anymore, and I didn't want to be lost anymore. I felt lost. And um, one day they were packing their car to go somewhere. And of course, the abandonment and everything just set into me. And I said, frantically on the front porch, Dad, where are you going? Why are you leaving? And she turned around to me so hateful and so mean. And she says, we're going on vacation because we're a family and we don't want you with us. We never wanted you here. And it hurt me because he never stopped her from saying that or doing or saying those things. And um, I just felt then I was just absolutely a worthless person in this world. And I remember standing on his front porch crying and saying, God, why doesn't anybody like me? Why didn't anybody love me? And why wasn't I wanted? If I knew what I had done wrong, I'd go back and fix it. But I just didn't know at 16 years old why nobody loved me or wanted me. I just could not understand that a little girl or a child would have had to live like this and feel this way. I I, I wanted to know why I began questioning God and answering questions at 16 years old. That day was my first attempt at suicide. I thought I would drown myself in their pool and, and, and hurt them like they hurt me. And part of me thought, and realistically, well, I don't want to do that because I didn't want my little sister to see it, Wendy. I thought that's not fair to Wendy because she's not part of this. And, um, But that was my first thoughts that I would attempt suicide was at 16 years old on my dad's front porch. And there's a lot I had to deal with as a, as a teenager. I had wrecked so much school from being a runaway, never going to school. I had to make up so many years twice at a time, like my freshman year, I had to make up what I had skipped from middle school. Then I got to my uh, sophomore year, and I had to make up part of my freshman year with my sophomore year. And my dad made me go night and night, night school and day. He did not care. And I had to finish and do so much work and work so hard. And then in my you know, junior year, finish out my sophomore year. And then my senior year, I never thought I would make it. I just thought, there's just no way. But you know what? I did. By God's mercy upon me, I graduated from high school with my dad right there. And um, it was it was a big thing for me to accomplish something in my life that I did, you know? And that's what I guess the attachment to my father began that I thought, okay, my dad really did kind of care. He didn't know how earlier, and I get it. But um, unfortunately, the family dynamic never changed in the second family. He still raged and hurt and abused. So, so was he still abusive to you? Yeah. Well, not to me. I think I'd grown up. Ah. No, I, yeah. I think I'd come to the point where you know what, I'd have fought him. You know, I'm like, this isn't going to happen anymore. You know, he but was just verbally though. Correct. Yeah. Still, he still put his cuts in and had his mean things to say. Yeah. But lay his hands on me? No, not on your life. Not when I was older. But still, for the other family, I I had two half brothers by then. He just kind of raged on them too, and you know, things happened in the home. And here I had thought, finally, you know, at 18 years old, wow, it wasn't really us. You know, mm-hmm. finally that came to me one day. Ah, it wasn't really all five of us or my mother. You know, my father. You know, still not knowing the depth of everything that I knew, that he was just an angry, mean person, and I just could not figure out why. I remember thinking at 18 years old, I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out what is wrong with my dad because, you know, and still remember from the time that he found me until I was 18 years old, nothing from my mother at all. Really? Did nothing. you know anything about what nothing. she was doing? I had not a clue, not my siblings, my sisters never spoke to me. No, just I was literally um non-existent to my mother and I still wanted to figure that out, but we'll get to that and um 
Yeah. Very hurtful. Very yeah. hurtful. So during all this, and, and as you describe it, it's really dark mm-hmm. and uh, painful. And I would wonder, it, what was your understanding? Was there any sort of connection to faith or God or any knowledge of that from them in that house from your perspective? What was your understanding of God and where did you get that from? The only understanding of God I knew was that I was raised with my parents, that we were Catholic, and we had to go to uh, the Catholic school. We had to go to Saturday um, catechism classes. I had to be baptized in the Catholic Church and do my First Holy Communion. Those things I remember. But I also remember sitting in church looking at the Jesus that hung on the cross with the blood, and it scared me half to death, first of all. And I always remember that in church, we got in trouble a lot. We were always hit a lot or smacked a lot in church because we were bad kids. By your parents. Mm-hmm. My perspective of God at this point in my life was that God wasn't a loving God. I knew nothing from the Catholic Church of love. I knew nothing like that at all, that there was a God that um, of love. No, I did not. I just knew that God allowed bad things to happen to kids. That I, that I knew, and that in my cries and in my hurt and in my runaway, that Nothing ever saved me or protected me. Therefore, I thought of a God as a God that will get you and hurt you because you did bad things. Mm-hmm. Mm. They didn't have much of a background either. But they guess they had enough that they were in the Catholic Church and they knew that that was uh, where they were attached to. But other than that, there was no uh, prayer in your home <laughs> or anything like that, right? No, there was nothing like that at all. Yeah. I mean, they were married in the Catholic Church, and I believe it was just uh, their parents were Catholic. It was one of those kind of things, you know. But um, no, sir, we had no faith-based anything in our home, nothing at all. No. And and during your time when you were out and away and up through your teenage years, did you have any encounter, whether it be friends or, or anything else, that showed you a different side of that at all? One young man in high school one time that had a, a prayer group that, of course, I laughed and mocked. And I said, well, why would you do that? <laughs> the not knowing. And, you know, I was young. I was 16 years old. And he's just like, oh, well, you know, he'd share a few things with me. I'm like, yeah, okay. But remember, my perspective of God was he hurts children. And yeah. that's all I could think of mm. is that um, God was a bad God because I didn't know anything different. So you've gotten up to 18 years old and you've graduated high school. What happened next? And my stepmother gradually moved me out of the house as fast as she could. I graduated in June and I had a little apartment by August. And that was okay. I was ready to, you know, I'd been alone before, so I'll leave. That's fine. I don't care. So I did. And I went and got a little job and paid for my little apartment and stayed alone again. And, um, by this time I was going to be about 19 years old in my, I, kind of had contact with my older sister. And she said, well, why don't you come down and, you know, see me and this and that. I said, okay. So she had an apartment. So I thought that I would just go down and live with her and combine the bills and the money and instead of being by myself so much. And um, there I met a young man that lived in the same apartment complex as we did. And um, I married that young man. Mm. And he was from a different culture of life. My parents said, if you marry him, we'll disown you. And I said, well, good. So I married him. And I didn't really um, count the cost. I did it because I didn't want to be alone anymore. And I did it because he said he loved me. And I thought, well, nobody else did. So what, what have I got to lose? I was young, you know. I wanted life in the fast lane. And unfortunately, that's what I got. 
And he was a young man that we called back then um, below the tracks. Mm. He wasn't of my stature in society, I guess you would say. And um, I paid a heavy price. For seven years, I listened to his abuse and his anger and his pain. And he treated me less than I should have been treated as a human being, as a, as a person, as a wife. Um, and I began still in my addiction. That never changed through all my high school years. All I did was get high and drink because that's all I knew to take the pain away from the childhood. What were you doing drug-wise? Back then when we were young, it was smoking a lot of marijuana and snorting speed. That's all we knew to do, and that's what we did. Yeah. So one of the street drugs, it was just like that. By the time I was in high school, I drank a lot, and I started on cocaine at a very young age in high school. Um, some of my friends experimented with LSD and things like that, but... You know, I didn't like anything that made my head spin that bad, and I couldn't do LSD very good. So I thought, no, but cocaine and speed I liked, you know, and I became a cocaine addict. And by the time that I was about ready to get divorced, my nose would constantly bleed because I damaged the lining of my nose. Was he addicted as well? No, nothing. He didn't even drink. Really? So a lot of my addiction was hidden in my marriage. Wow. A lot of it was hidden, but it kept masking the pain that I suffered all of my life. And it's like, I carried this pain with me. And unfortunately, I carried it into a relationship that, um, you know, I, I, I heard this saying one time, and you have to understand these words got to me so so profoundly. It says, if you don't heal what hurts you, you're going to bleed on those who didn't cut you. Yeah. And my ex did not cut me. But unfortunately... I bled out all over him in many, many ways, emotionally, physically, financially. I ruined a lot of things. And um, it was my addiction. It was my pain. It was my hurt. I would expect going into a thing like that after everything that's happened up to 18 years, whatever the first shiny thing that might potentially solve my problem, I'm grabbing. Jumped. Didn't grab. Jumped. Yeah. (laughs) Tackled it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I did. And it, you know, no chance is that going to... And I never I never really knew him long enough. And um, I just kind of took what came to me because I felt like that's all I was worth. You know, what, what, it had to be better than what I went through. That's what I was... That was my rationale in my mind in this marriage. You know? Yeah. Um, he, had a, he, he had a good job and made money. He was a painter. So back then at, at 19 years old, make him making $500 a week was a lot of money at that time. Yeah. And um, I always worked a little job, loved my little jobs, went to work, was very responsible. Hired Nakite all the time, but very responsible. Never yeah. missed work, never called mm-hmm. in, never became very resourceful and very responsible. Well, at 26 years old, it just came to an end. I just went home one day and I just said to him, I don't know why. I just said, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't like you anymore. I haven't liked you for a long time. And I just want to go home. And I called my dad. And within two hours, he was down there with the truck and the trailer. And we loaded my stuff in. And I just drove away. I just didn't want to do it anymore. Didn't like who I was with him. Didn't want, didn't want to look at him. He made, he just, it was just one of those events that... I walked away, and I was divorced in February of 1986, and I was 26 years old, and I was a basket case. I was a drug addict. I was an alcoholic. We had filed bankruptcy. I gave him everything, all the money, the house. I gave him everything, and I just walked out of my life. Literally, absolutely the most destructive person you ever want to meet in your life. You? Me. 
So I went home to stay with my dad for a little while. What'd you do next? What did I do next? I got, okay, so here's where my journey in life takes a turn. (laughs) It didn't get bad all the time. And um, I got a job at a high school in California. You're an addict, and and, and how'd you get a job at a high school? Because I'm a food service by, that's my profession, is is a chef in food service. Okay. And so I became a cafeteria manager at a high school because I was good with food. I had a long history, I mean, a good history of food, good history of employment. Though I was the youngest food service director manager they ever hired, um, they gave me a chance, and I did it. It was, this is my, uh, where my journey begins, so I get this job, a lot of money, everything like that, you know, moved out of my dad's house, got a little apartment. And as I'm working at this high school, um, I met a janitor, and his name was Joe. So I thought, okay, big deal. Well, he'd come by my office every day, and he'd say, hey, Lynette, Jesus loves you. I'd be like, okay. <laughs> I just thought it was a joke at first, you know. And so, I mean, days would go by, months would go by, hey, you know what, Jesus loves you and everything. I'd be like, Joe, if you don't quit saying that to me, you know, (laughs) I'm going to hurt you. (laughs) And he would bring me flyers that would, you know, flyers on my desk that would invite me to church. I'd say, oh my gosh, this guy's like learning impaired. And I'd wad him up and throw him in the trash. And he'd just keep bringing me flyers and tell me things about Jesus and say, I'm like, okay, whatever you believe, dude, you know, keep it to yourself, whatever, you know. And um, he'd consistently bring me flyers. Well, one time he brought me flyers, and on the front was like hands breaking chains. It says, let Jesus break the chains of addiction in your life and hurt and brokenheartedness and this and that. And I'm reading it going, yeah, whatever, you know? So again, I wadded it up and politely threw it in my trash. Well, the next day I got back to work, and it was flat on my desk because Joe was the janitor. This is the guy that takes the trash, right? So he kept taking the flyers out of my trash (laughs) and putting it flat on the table, on my desk. I'd be like... Well done, Joe. Yeah. I'm like, okay, you really have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) I would tell him, you're a lunatic, and you just need to leave me alone because you know what? Keep your beliefs, but that's not what I believe at all. Yeah. Okay. So, Joe, Joe, Joe. So... I was at work one day, and um, one of my ladies in the cafeteria opened the back door, and she goes, Lynette, your ex-husband's here. And I went, Mm. what? (laughs) I mean, it had been a year, Mm. more than that. And I thought, what in the world could this young man want with me? So I went out to the back door, and he grabbed me. And of course, I thought to hit me, so I yanked away from him. And this is what happened to me. He spit in my face, and he said to me, as he's holding on to my shirt, you're worthless, you're nothing. No one will ever want you because you're nothing. And he threw me back. And I went, oh my goodness. And I, I kind of stood there for a minute thinking, did I really hear what I heard? And I began to frantically wipe my face off, grab my shirt and scrub the side of my face, the right side of my cheek off. And I was just started bawling. And I just started the crying so hard, I began to literally feel, I thought, my heart break in my chest. And I thought inside of me, haven't I heard enough? Isn't there enough damage done to me already? You know, and I couldn't understand what I had heard nor why, because he just walked away. I sobbed so hard, I couldn't even get a word out. And as I opened the door to go back in the building, there was Joe. 
And Joe said, Lynette, God came to heal your broken heart and bind your wound. And I turned around, looked at him, I said, I find that very hard to believe right now, if you'll excuse me. And I went into the bathroom and I washed my face and I I just kept washing it and washing it and washing it and saying, take the words away, take the words away. I don't want to hear those words anymore. And I was so brokenhearted, so brokenhearted inside. I really thought my heart, I was going to have a heart attack and I was going to die because I was so brokenhearted. And as I came out, I was in the break room, out of the restroom, and I came to sit down in the break room, and Joe was in there. And I went, okay. <laughs> and part of me thought, you say one word, and it's over. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and he just sat there with me and said, I am so sorry, but I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And I looked at Joe, and I said, I still find that very hard to believe right now. And he just began to talk to me and talk to me. And he began to tell me that God loved me. And he's sorry what had happened, but you know that wasn't a part of God. And then the hammer hit. He invited me to church. <laughs> In my vulnerable, sad, brokenness, couldn't think two words at the time, um, would I please go to church with him? And I turned around and I thought, okay, Joe, I'm going to make you a deal. I'll go to church with you. I'll go to church with you on Sunday, but you're going to lay off this Jesus stuff. It's over. You ain't going to bring me no more flyers. <laughs> Don't tell me about God. And I'll go to church with you, but there ain't no more Jesus stuff anymore. You understand me? He's like, okay, but you'll go to church with me on Sunday? I said, Joe, I will go to church with you on Sunday. I made a promise. And I did. I kept that promise because I wasn't a promise breaker. And I got in my little car and I drove down to a storefront church in Montebello, California. And um, there was a little preacher man in there. And I thought, this is the weirdest church I've ever seen hmm. in my life, first of all. So I went in there and I listened to this man, uh, a great talk. I will admit that. You know what? And I, I kind of liked what he said, you know, in the world, we live in a broken, hurting world. And I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, and part of me thought, Joe told this man about me. I know he did. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I sat there going, oh my God, I know he did it, you know, and panicking and freaking out. And, All these people know about me. Yeah, they knew. That's why Joe brought me here. <laughs> and it wasn't true. But um, then this preacher man had what was called, wait for it, an altar call. People got up and walked down to that altar and got on their knees. And Joe looked at me and I said, not on your life, buddy. It ain't happening. And I sat there in fear and I sat there thinking, oh, my stars, these people have lost their mind. And, you know, the, the, the preacher kept talking and saying, you know, if you feel anything in your heart, any tug in your heart, if God's speaking to you, you know what, come and, come and kneel down, just let, let it go right here. And Joe looked at me again, and I thought, okay, you know what, I'll do this. <laughs> I'll do it, because if I don't do it, Joe's never going to leave me alone. And Joe's he's going to take me down there, and I'm going to get mad. So I got up and walked down to that altar, and I knelt down. And um, Did you, know, you have any thing in your heart that said, I got to let go of this stuff now. No. This was purely to appease Joe. Per purely to appease Joe, so Joe would leave me alone. I got you. So I went down there, and of course, this um, preacher man, who I, I really liked, he's a pretty, pretty cool guy, um, you know, he said this little prayer to me, and I said it, whatever, not knowing what I was saying. I just did it because he told me to say it. You know, I did it because Joe was sitting there. <laughs> And I thought, if I don't do this, I can't get out of this church today. They're going to kidnap me or something. <laughs> so um, I did it, you know, and I said, okay, whatever, you know. And that was my first ever experience about a Jesus and church and a, a salvation talk that I had ever heard in my whole life. And I was 27 years old. I just think back over the whole thing. And as, as you're describing all of it, we talk about seeing God in the love of others and when Jesus came, he, he talked about 
God, he's really the first one that referred to him as father. And when you think about a good father and how he would treat you and care for you, it gives you a good glimpse as to what God's like. You didn't have that. You didn't see that. I just watched this little girl coming up and has has been presented with everything except love. God is love. It breaks my heart this whole time to, to think through all of that. Though God protected you I, I, in his own way, I guess, during that time, and I wasn't there. I mean, you're here now, and you're doing amazing things. But to seemingly be that non-present during just the critical time in your life, it's hard for me to just sit here and, and listen to, and I can imagine to live. I, I could understand some some real animosity and negative thoughts toward if there is an author of life. Why have I not seen him until I'm whatever age, nearly 30 at this point? And even then, he's trying to break in through Joe and the natural reaction of, of rejection. I, I, I don't accept that. I don't believe that. That's, that's ridiculous. You don't, you know, you don't, you don't come in here now and suddenly say it's okay. But as I've listened to this whole thing, I'm like, surely there was a point in that childhood where he broke in and you knew there was something that could be grabbed onto. There was, there was something pursuing you and that you encountered it. And then, you know, you drifted back off in another place, and then you can't, but you just didn't. It wasn't there. Do you see it that way? I do, but I also see um, as a child, I had an inner strength, and I believe a strength that God gave me to withstand unfortunate circumstances. And I believe today, because of where I am, that had to be the building blocks of where He sent me today in my life. Because without those, life circumstances and without those learning life's way, unfortunate circumstances, I would not be what I am today. And that I know for a fact. But I do know that God gave me a strength, a physical strength, an inner an inner strength, a strength of compassion. Oh, do I have a strength of compassion even as a child? My uh, one grandmother was very sick as a child. She had brain tumors. And I would say, I would say, Nana, it's okay because I'm going to take care of you. And I would physically try to move her in bed and try to take care of her and care for her. I'd be, I was that kind of a child that not too many children have that natural instinct. But I really do believe today that God gave me that. So so you've gone to church with Joe. And so I went to church you, with you said Joe. this prayer mm-hmm. with this nice preacher. And then... And then I went back to my drug, sex, and rock and roll. Yeah. Because that's all I knew. That's right. And I, 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 was 20, I was 28 years old by then. I had played this game for a long time. I'd still go to church when he'd invite me, and of course I'd go and raise my hands, oh, Jesus, Jesus. But I did it because Joe was there, and I was afraid he was going to be mean to me, and I didn't want that to happen, because I thought he was the nicest person I ever met. And, you know, God has a way of getting our attention no matter how, not on our terms, as I've learned in my life. God has a way of getting our attention, and God will not be mocked, so you cannot go to church and raise your hand and praise God and go home and get high and live your life like a hellion, excuse me, but you just can't do it because God will not be mocked. And at 28 years old, I suffered a stroke. Mm. 
I suffered a stroke because I was a drug addict and an alcoholic. That's why I suffered a stroke, because it had been too much drugs too much, too many times. I went to a hospital, and there was a doctor there, and he, of course, talked to me and this and that. And he said, you know, we, we did a, a, re, a talk, a blood lab, and we know that, you know, you're an addict. I said, yeah, I am. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I am. And he said, at this point, if you do not stop your drugs and get clean and sober and, you know, clean your life up, either A, you're going to have a massive stroke and somebody will have to take care of you. I went, well, that'll never happen. Nobody likes me. And B, you're going to die. And I thought, well, I'll choose B. I remember saying that. I said, well, I choose B. I don't care if I die. I couldn't care less. You know, I've tried to attempt suicide and I couldn't even do that right. I don't care. You know, in reality, I did. But that was just my defense, my hurt, my pain. And, um, you know, I was 28 years old and had a stroke. And I thought back on my life in that hospital thinking, I have drugged the little girl that I am around for 28 years, and I am exhausted. I am tired of the heaviness of pain and of what happened to me. I am tired. Physically, I was exhausted. Emotionally and mentally, I was a train wreck. And I thought, you know what? I just have to do something. Something just has to change because I, I can't do this anymore. You know, I didn't care, literally, if I had lost my life, if I would have died from a stroke. I could not have cared at that time. So I went home from the hospital and I thought, okay, I'm going to try to do a little bit better. I'm going to try on my own, you know, to get a little bit better. I, I couldn't do it. I could not do it. I could not do it with the addiction that I was in, with the pain and the hurt, and still remember the non-existent of my family. By this time, I'd been separated from my father as well because of my stepmother. So I really had no family bearing whatsoever. They had moved away. They didn't even tell us they were leaving, just moved away. It broke my heart tremendously that my father would allow my stepmother to do that, just move away, not even tell us where he was. And we didn't know. So again, here I am alone, hurt, broken, again by myself. And um, I thought, well, you know what? I'll try church again. What have I got to lose? That was what I kept thinking was, what do I got to lose? I got nothing else to lose, you know? <laughs> so I'd go back to church once in a while with Joe, and I tried it. But then again, my addiction, you know, the more I felt the pain and the hurt of what had happened to me, the more high I got, the more loaded I got, the more I drank, until God will not be mocked. I had another stroke. And this one was worse. I was um, going to be almost 29 years old, and I went to the hospital, as God would have it, and the same doctor was there. And he said to me, I told you last time you were here that if you didn't get yourself together, clean and sober, and get your life right, that you're going to have a major stroke, and you're headed that way, and I have to send you to another rehab hospital now to get taken care of because of your condition. And I thought, well, that's not going to happen because I don't, I don't, you know, I'm just not going to do it. And um, this one was worse. This one gave me a traumatic brain injury. And um, it jolted my brain to the point that I, um, to explain it easy, I couldn't count change. I had no no bearings of um, counting change, money, things like that, nor directions or distance of where I was and where I was going. And um, that really, really bothered me because usually I was pretty... My faculties were there. Yeah, was I high? Yeah, but I could, you know, function in life. That was no longer an option to me. And I and I knew that. So he decided, he said, well, I have a friend who has another place, another rehab hospital, if you'd like to go there. And I said, okay. You know, he gave me the name of this person. And um, I was admitted into a mental health facility. 
At the time, it was holistic and um, no drugs. I had to go clean and sober on my own, and I knew that. The strength that I had inside of me, I would tap into that, and I would I would make it. I was I was a tough cookie, and um, this is where my journey began when I opened the door of that mental health facility, and the anger that I had towards everyone that hurt me, and every step I took, I cursed the person from my father to my mother to my grandfather to my ex husband, everybody who had hurt me through my life that had made such a traumatic difference in my life. I I just, I was angry. I was mad. And I thought I had a right to be mad. And unfortunately, that night, there was not very many beds in this certain facility because of my condition. So I had to go on the psychiatric ward, probably because of my condition. And second of all, there was no other beds to put me in. So I was put in the place in the hospital that was called Straight Jacket City, no, I wasn't put in a straitjacket. That was the funny name that they gave it in the hospital. Oh, she's in straitjacket city. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was kind of rough to take that in. But I thought, okay, whatever. You know, it's just a room, you know. Um, not kind of like this, not very big. It was by myself, you know. And I just thought, okay, I'll, I'll stick this out. No big deal. You know, that was, my, that was my mentality was no big deal. I've been through worse. I would say that. You know, I was, I was angry. I was very, very, very angry that night. And um, I was tired, I was exhausted, and literally, I did not want to take one more breath and live, and that is the honest truth. But you know what? Sometimes God has a way of meeting us where we are when we don't expect it. And um, out of my anger that night in that room, I kind of tore the room apart, and I flipped over the end tables, and I was mad, and I was yelling and screaming, and I thought, People probably thought, well, no wonder she's in a straitjacket city. <laughs> she's a lunatic. They may put you in a straitjacket <laughs> after all. <laughs> no. But I was mad and, and I hit yeah. my arms. I beat my arms against the tables, the furniture, and I thought I shattered my wrist because I had hit them so hard. And I was so mad at God. I was so mad at God that I would get on my knees and I shook my fist at the air and I said, why me? I needed that question answered. I wanted it answered that night. I didn't want anybody to say anything bad. I just wanted God to tell me, why me? Why did I suffer as a child? Why was I never wanted, never loved, abandoned? Why was I treated as if I was nothing, given no value as a person whatsoever? I wanted to know, why me? I kept shaking my fists, asking God that question that night. And I learned a couple things. (laughs) Uh, your arms are too short to box with God, so don't even try. And don't ever shake your fist at God, because that is a a very bad thing to do. But when you're angry, and you're lost, and you have nowhere else to go, you just tap into the that hurt that over, overwhelmed me that night and overtook me. And I remember telling God, you're not a real God. No, you're not. You'd have come down and helped me as a child, you know, you'd have been here 20 years ago, you know, and I'm having this conversation. No wonder they probably thought I was nuttier than a fruitcake in this room. And I just thought, you know, I got on my knees and I cried and I sobbed and I said, okay, God, if this is how you're going to play this game. This is what we're going to do then. I mean, this is the conversation I'm having with God in the middle of a room in a psychiatric ward. And I'm saying, okay, God, this is what we're going to do. You're going to listen to me for once. This is how this is going to go out. This is what I'm telling God. This is how this is going to play out. That uh, you're going to get me out of this place, number one. 
Number two, you're going to give me back my mind that is now destroyed. Number three, you're going to get me clean and sober. You're going to get me off drugs. You're just going to do it for me because that's what I'm asking you to. And you're going to give me a life back that I've never known my whole life. You're going to show me something that I've never seen, I've never felt. You're going to do this for me, God. And if you do this for me, I will serve you for the rest of my life. I promise you that, God. Knowing in my heart, it's ne- nothing's ever going to happen, that I'm just mouthing off because I'm angry and mad about where I am. And I'm telling him, and if you do this for me, I promise you, I will serve you for the rest of my life. I promise you that. But you know what? You're not going to do it because I know you, God, because I've known you all of my life. Nothing's going to ever good's going to happen. And I mean, literally, you know, when you're messed up in your head, you're just thinking, God. I'm excited that you're talking to him. <laughs> it's like the first time you talk to him, right? Well, kind of, yeah, in a, in a reality sense of that you know what, I could no longer accept where I was and that this wasn't going to happen to me anymore. That's where about where I was, you know. So be careful what you wish for and what you say to God. And that night in my very, very uh, traumatic brain injury room in a room in a mental hospital, God appeared to me and he spoke to me. And at first, I thought it was me just thinking I was coming, going through withdrawals and that, you know, I was just kind of tripping out for a few minutes. I had to get my bearings together, and uh, the, the, dark was, the room was dark, and a light appeared to me. And in this light was an angel, and I saw her as clear as day. Ever seen something like that Never before? in my life. Never in my life. And I kept looking at it going, okay, you know, and thinking, am I real? Am I tripping? Is this just something that people go through here, you know? And then she began to audibly speak to me. And that's when I melted. And she said to me out of the Song of Solomon, come now, my love, come. For you, the winter and season is over, and the cooing of the turtle dove is heard on our land. Come now, Lynette, come now, my love. For your face is lovely and your voice is beautiful. Come now, my love. And I just broke. And I sobbed until I absolutely passed out and fell asleep. And I woke up the next day. It's the first time I'd slept in 30 years. The first time all night in 30 years. Not high, not addicted, not loaded. I slept. And I woke up the next day and I knew something was different. I did not feel the same. I did not. I got up, think, oh my gosh. I was actually for once in my life in my right mind. And I did my therapy like they asked me to for the 28 days I was there, whatever it was. And I had a male counselor that stood beside me all of this time walking through things. And, you know, I talked about some things, you know, and this and that. When I went to the front door of that hospital, he said, Lynette, you came here a victim. I said, you know what I did, but I leave a survivor. He says, no, you'll always be a victim. And I said, no, I won't. Uh Uh-uh. I choose to live now. And that began a long path in my life, a long road when I stepped out of that hospital going to see my best friend that day, she said to me, you, Nettie, you don't look the same. Are you okay? And I just went, I'm good, you know? And when I walked out of that hospital, you have to remember something. I was the one that was touched and changed. I had the same parents. I had the same family. Nothing changed but me. My outlook on things, 
everything, and I promised God that day, that night, that I would never look back. And I had to learn something that I was not prepared for at all. I had to forgive, forgiveness. And I remember thinking to myself, how am I supposed to forgive those? Come on now, let's be real here, God. You know, I still was on that conversation with God. You want me to forgive a man that drugged me to a basement and raped me when I was six years old? You want me to forgive what he did to me, what he hurt me, when he took my virtue from me, when he physically scarred me so I could never have children? You want me to forgive that man? I could not come to grips with that. I could not do it. And I thought, you want me to forgive a father and a mother who couldn't love me and hurt me and yelled at me and screamed at me and abused me and abandoned me? The people that I was born to, you want me to forgive them? They should, you know, they should come to me. You know, that was my, that was my thinking. But God had to take me somewhere one day that I, I never thought I would go to the cross. And you know what? I saw this picture of God hanging on the cross with blood dripping down him from his hands, from his head, from everywhere. And I remember looking at this picture going, oh my gosh, the reality of it actually hit me for the first time of what he, what he meant and what he was. And God spoke to me that day and said, you know what? I forgave you. I hang here for you. Now you need to forgive because I hang here for your father, for your mother, for your grandfather, for your ex-husband. I hang here for them too. And I never realized that until that moment in time when I saw that picture. I never thought they were worthy enough for forgiveness. I never could have imagined. And I just said, okay, God. I remember thinking, looking at the picture, I said, okay, God, but in your timing, you can't make forgiveness happen. You can ask God to help you get through it, but you can't make it happen. What do you mean you can't make it happen? You can't make an appointment with my father and sit down with him and say, okay, I forgive you because you did this and that to me. That is not on God's terms. And I was on God's terms. And so I said, okay, God, I- I'm going to do this, but y- we got to do it one step at a time with me. Don't don't just throw this all at me. You know, you got to take me one step at a time. And um, literally, as God is my witness, my forgiveness for other people that hurt me came at very, very different stages in my life. First of all, I had to forgive myself. I didn't mean to do a lot of things that I did. I didn't mean to hurt people. But you know what, when you're not in your right mind and you don't know Jesus in your heart, you hurt because hurting people hurt people and broken people break people. And I hurt and I broke a lot of people and I didn't mean to. So I did, I had to forgive myself and come to grips with things I had done that as far as the east is from the west and as deep as the ocean, God took that sin from me and he took it away and it was no longer there. You know, my heart had to understand that and believe that. I could not forgive anyone until I forgave myself. You know, I had to um, forgive my dad, you know, who could only love with harsh fists, anger. That's all I ever knew of my father. He was a big man and he scared me. And I knew I had to forgive. I didn't know how. I didn't know what. I didn't know how he would receive it. I had no idea what could have happened. I went on in my life and I, I had another relationship. I have a son and my son was very, very little. And we went to go visit my father in the mountains. He had moved to the mountains. So we went up there to go see Papa, and um, he adored my son, absolutely worshipped the ground my son walked on. I think 
showing me that he was sorry. So one morning we got up, we were in the mountains, dropped dead gorgeous in the mountains in Lake Arrowhead, California. We walked out to the driveway. My dad was standing in the driveway. And I said, he said, Lynette Louise, I need to talk to you. I went, oh no, okay. <laughs> Not knowing what he was going to say. And he said, I have something to tell you. And I said, okay. And he said, I will not go meet my maker till I've made peace with all my children. I start with you. And I said, okay. I looked at my dad and I said, dad, I love you more than my lipstick. Let's just go on from here. And in that instant, God took every, everything bad away. And I adored my father until he passed away. And None of my brothers and sisters would say anything at the funeral. And they asked me to, if I would give the eulogy at the funeral. I said, absolutely, because I was free. And when you're free, it's okay. I also knew that somewhere deep down in there, he was a good man. He just didn't know how to find himself because he got lost. My travels of forgiving others has been different. My ex-husband, I saw him one time. My in-laws invited me over, and I said, I don't want to go. And they said, please come. It must have been six years. I hadn't seen him, hadn't heard a word, nothing. And um, I had changed a lot, you know, got my life together, got clean and sober, had, uh, you know, lost some weight, did that, you know, I just always changed. And um, he walked in the house and walked right by me, and I went, oh, my goodness. And he turned around, looked at me, he goes, oh, my gosh. And I go, hey, how are you, you know? He goes, fine. He looked at me like straight in my face and he tells me, you hate me. I said, no, I don't. I said, I'm sorry. I forgive you. I said, do you forgive me? And I exactly what I said. I said, we were young. Please forgive me. And he just looked at me and goes, yeah, it's okay. It's all good, you know? And that's all it took for me to walk out of that house at the end of the day and say, you know, God, it's okay. I'm, you know? I just had to move on from that broken person that I was with him. I wasn't fair to him. And you know, it's been a journey. I had to forgive my grandfather. Didn't want to. Didn't think he deserved it. But you know what? He did. Because we all deserve God's love and mercy. You know, he hurt me deeply. And you know what? I just had to understand he was a sick man. And um, God healed all that from me, though. He healed me. At 34 years old, I gave birth to my first son, my only son. I could never have children before. Mm. So God healed, and He blessed me and my mother. <laughs> my mother was a long journey. 40 years, I didn't speak to my mother. 40 years, my mother had no contact with me, had nothing to do with me, nothing to say, nothing. She eventually came to Alabama in 2018. My sister had come here because she wanted another another start in life. Her husband passed away, so she came here to Alabama. So they kind of followed me here. And um, she took my mom in. My mom was had dementia. And um, when my mom flew into Birmingham Airport after 40 years, and she came down the elevator by the baggage claim, and here's this old woman sitting in this wheelchair. I said, oh my God, that's my mom. And when they pushed her out in the wheelchair, she looked at me and she goes, oh my God, I love your hair. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, thank you. She didn't know it was me. Hmm. No. And as they pushed her up to my sister, so my sister had to claim her and everything like that, she turned around and she goes, Tammy, I love that lady's hair. And she, my sister said, 
Mom, that's Lynette. And she looked at me and she goes, well, I know that. She had dementia. Yeah. She had onset of Alzheimer's and dementia. And from that day forward, she had no memory of anything. And that was my healing. And that was it for me. I just had to accept what was. I had to accept that she was broken from her father, I'm sure. Her mother was very sick. She's the one that had brain tumors and had surgery after surgery. I'm sure my mother was broken and she didn't know how to be a mom because she really didn't have a mom. And my journey's been a long journey, but I've had an incredible life, a life of forgiveness, a life on God's terms. I've had my own ministry called Broken Wings Women's Ministry of the Southeast, which took me to the Tuscaloosa County Jail, which I was the women's chaplain for four years. Incredible time in my life, incredible time with the women. And I know the incarcerated women are just broken little girls. They're broken. They're hurt. They have a life of abuse, a life of such sadness. But I had so much compassion and love for them. For four years, I taught there on a Thursday and went there and listened to them. And I just took, you know, one step at a time. In the county jail, I had a, a great encounter one day. I went into my teaching class, and there was a blackboard in there. Never had any chalk. I was there four years. One day, there was a piece of chalk. And I went, oh, my goodness, chalk. So I did a, I did a great illustration that day. I wrote on the board what my husband had said to me, my ex-husband, that you're worthless, you're nothing, no one will ever want you because you're nothing. And I wrote it on the board, and I just left it there. So the women came into class. And they began to read the board. Oh, my gosh, who wrote that? Who would put that on there? That's just terrible, Miss Lynette. Why don't you erase it? I said, no, just give us a minute. We're going to, you know, talk about it, you know, see how you feel about it. They had no idea I had written it. So I said, how does this sentence make you feel? And the, they began to talk and share, well, you know what? Uh, and I said, okay, this is what we're going to do. I want you to go to the board, and I want you to write a sentence of the worst thing that was ever said to you. Pick up the chalk. It's okay. Whatever you put on the board, that's fine. Then come and sit back in your seat. You would not believe what was written on that board. You would not believe it. And I said, okay, now this is what we're going to do. I said, the first sentence, I said, that was me. That happened to me. They were flabbergasted. Miss Lynette, who could say that to you? And I said, this is what we're going to do. Y'all are going to come up here. You're going to hold this eraser with me. And we're going to erase those terrible things that were said to me. And we're going to let God take it all away. And that's the day I never thought of those words again, because those words haunted me all of my life when I looked in the mirror, that I was worthless, that I was nothing, that I was no good. And I would, it seemed like for 20 years, wash my right cheek. I was obsessed with washing my really? cheek. Yeah, because I thought people knew it had happened. And um, that day with those women holding my hand, when we erased those words, God took them all away. I never thought about them again. Okay, I got some questions. Okay. That's amazing, all of that, and there's so much in that that I want to explore a little bit more. The first thing is this encounter the first night you were there. I, I, I sit there and, and try to experience that with you as you're describing it. What did this light look like? Round and orb. An orb that just came from like small and got larger as it got close into my room. Just a round um, orb of light. And you saw something in mm -hmm. the orb? Mm -hmm. 
Was it a face? Was it a? It was it... the outline like of an angel, the wings, an angel. She was beautiful, waving her wings inside this little orb and began to speak to me. Mm-hmm. Just like a Disney movie. <laughs> and what was your reaction? I mean, did you sit there stunned? Did you mm-hmm. ask questions? Did you just shut up and listen to whatever was going on? Did I shut up and listen. Pinch yourself and say, "What is this a a reaction to my circumstances or drugs or something like that?" I thought all those things, but I just sat there and listened in shock, really, like this. Oh my gosh! Just sat there. But she said a specific verse, which uh-huh. you quoted uh-huh. from start to finish. Song of Solomon. Uh huh. Never heard it before in my life. Never really picked up a Bible before. No. And this presence, this angel, mm-hmm. quoted this specifically correct and when she was done what happened she just kind of floated away and i fell asleep that was it i just fell asleep did you feel differently i mean did you feel relief in the moment yes i felt like um you know when you're so exhausted because of what yeah because of what she said is true yeah that is relief. Right. I felt, you know how you, when you sometimes you're exhausted, you just want to go, ah. yeah, yeah. That's exactly how I felt. Like, oh my gosh, like it's just gone. And then I fell asleep. That was the end of that night until I woke up the next morning. What do you think happened there? I think that God gave me peace and rest for once in my life. I think that God gave me what was the most delicate, precious thing I would have looked at to comprehend at that time in my life. And I think that that's what God gave me, was something peaceful and beautiful, something that waved her beautiful wings and said these beautiful things to me, because I never had that before. And this burden that had been constructed for 30 years, would you say that it had been lifted or eased or changed in some way? I think it was lifted, did I still have things to deal with? Oh yes. Don't yeah. don't don't quote me that I never hurt another pain again. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not true. I think it was lifted. The weight and the heaviness of first of all, the first thing I know I remember was, wow, that was so beautiful. He sent me something beautiful. I remember thinking that. But don't you also parallel I mean, when you woke up the next day, mm-hmm. you said you f- felt like you got mm-hmm. you had this clarity, like you actually got rest. Correct. Because when you're in drugs and alcohol, you don't sleep too good. That's right. But he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first time that it seemed like you really reached out for him, Mm -hmm. even though there was some swings in there. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) Hey, but at least you're reaching toward him, right? I think that's what he wants. Mm -hmm. He just says, I'm I'm, I'm holding out my hand for you. Reach. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you can't be mad at me and, and not understand. You're a child. You're my child. Children don't always understand why things happen. Mm-hmm. But you turn to him, and he gave you rest. Mm-hmm. And it changed from that point on. That's correct. I mean, you aren't who you are today. You weren't that person then, but it changed. It did. And you literally got rest for the first time, mm-hmm. and spiritually began to get rest and start this process of renewing just like you asked for. Mm-hmm. 
just like you asked for. And on the forgiveness side of things, it sounds like, you know, so so there's there are physical things that took place that you went to your in ex-in-law's house and the ex-husband's there. Your dad calls you and says, we need to chat. And and you had a moment in each of these places. You knew each of these had to take place. Correct. Your mom was in the airport. So these are sort of processes that had to happen. But forgiveness happens, in, in, in a lot of forgiveness that I'm familiar with, has to happen whether the perpetrator is present or not. Mm-hmm. It's a forgiveness that has to happen mm-hmm. in your heart. You can do that, but I think it kind of goes to a new level when you finally get face-to-face, if you ever do, mm-hmm. with that person. Explain how you forgave before you got face-to-face with them, if you did. Was there a forgiveness that took place in your spiritual relationship with God before you encountered the people that you had to forgive? I think, yes. I think it started with me forgiving myself. That was a big a big step for me, first of all. Well, that's a good question, because we, when you start and when we talked through everything, we talked about all the things that happened to you mm-hmm. and the pain that it caused, the how many times you were told you were worthless, um, to um, just abuse mm-hmm. and the things that happened to you. But there's a good chance that in your life you did similar things to others. Mm-hmm. So I get that forgiveness of self. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. How'd you do that? When I saw that cross that yeah. day. Yeah, because you know, when I talk about and, and people have a hard time forgiving, and mm-hmm. you know, he tells us. You forgive because you've been forgiven. It, it's it, when Jesus describes how to pray, and he talks about the Lord's prayer. Once he's done with the prayer, he sidebars mm-hmm. on forgiving others and how critical that is. Forgiveness is something that God has to take you through, and mine wasn't spontaneous. I didn't have a a, a sermon ready to tell somebody. Everything happened totally by chance by God. None of this I could have ever orchestrated seeing my ex-husband. I didn't want to see him. My in-laws, they loved me. They still do till today. That never changed with them. And um, I chose to be there that day, not knowing any of the circumstances. I had no idea what would happen, what I would say out of my old anger. Would it have come out? Would I have spewed again? I don't know. I can't answer that. I just know what happened that day. My father, way out of the blue. You know, seriously, just really very unexpected. For him to tell me what he told me, it's like, okay, you know, did he say, I won't meet my maker till I've made peace with all my children? I went, oh my gosh. <laughs> it took me off guard. Wasn't ready. God's timing. Did you pray a lot about the forgiveness side of things before any of these things happened? Was there? Well, was I that- think I have for years as you walk through life after you, you've been through this kind of end. There's kind of an adjustment in your life, and you know that, you know what, I could no longer, you know, live like I was, being, you know, uh, unfaithful, you know what I mean, being not honest in my dealings. I think you go through life just thinking, you know, I remember being with my dad one time thinking, okay, I'm going to tell him today. I had it all planned. You know, it was my plan. I'm going to do it today. Well, you know, it never happened. And I really never had a chance to say to my stepmother, because 
My stepmother dropped out of a tragic heart attack at 49 years old, very unexpected. And um, at her funeral, I cried, not because I felt sorry for her, I cried out of anger. And uh, that was the day I just said, you know what, I forgive you, you know, you're just not a good person. And I just had to deal with it, you know, in my life. And, you know, I just had to come to grips with things, you know, I, I came to the grips that my anger and my hurt inside is never going to be forgiving to anybody. Therefore, I had to be healed of all that. And I was, I just had to go on in life, I could no longer live prior 28 years old, you know, I tell people when I speak, um, I don't edify my life right now before Christ of anything, but what's happened after is the road less traveled. What's happened after is what I'm here to say what God can do to anyone's life. I am sitting here today before you to tell you, it's, is it not easy? Is it easy? No, but with God taking you, I believe God for me prepared me for the forgiveness moments that I had. I have walked around for, um, 25 years for unforgiveness towards my son's father. 25 years. I've written letters 10 times. Never, never, nothing. Never, ever, ever made it to him. But at least I wrote them so I could get it out of my hurt and my pain because of what had happened in our relationship. And um, through the relationship with my son's father, my son has sisters. He has stepsisters. They were very young when I met their father, seven years old, 12 years old, and 15 years old, very, very young. I was not expecting a relationship with children because I didn't want children. I didn't believe in childhood. But he came with three daughters. And I said, okay, you know, kind of had a very small relationship with them. It was nothing to, you know, brag about, whatever. And then um, here I got pregnant, and I have their only brother. So things kind of shifted in our life. He went from all girls to a boy now. We're like, okay, so I have their only brother, the baby. And so um, as the relationship got worse and things got bad, um, I chose to, to leave the relationship and leave where we were in California. But I had no other contact with the girls at all. I, I really didn't. I felt that, you know what, it was time for me to raise my son and do what was right as a mother and not combined all this family drama that I couldn't deal with. So we didn't know what happened to the girls at all. I, I never knew. I never really kept my son from it, but we never really searched out to refine them again or anything, one of those kind of relationships, until 2018. And I got a, a Facebook message from his older sister. And she just said, oh my gosh, is this really you? Because I'm looking for my brother. And I thought, okay, it's okay. You know, he was grown. And um, I talked with my son. I said, your sisters want to talk to you. And um, it was in the end of November of 2018. And she would Facebook me back and forth and said, hey, I know something exciting is coming up. It's his birthday on December 13th. I said, it is. I said, but something more exciting than that's coming up. I said, he's graduating from the University of Alabama on Saturday, December 15th. She's, and she was so excited for that. She said, could she come? And I went, okay, it's been 25 years. And, uh, you know, and I said, sure. Well, she's married and has a daughter now and everything. And sure enough, they're retired 
military from Fort Bragg in North Carolina, and her and her husband and her daughter drove down here. We hadn't seen them for 25 years, and we had reconciliation, we had forgiveness, and we had healing. And I just had to, I had to say what I had to say, why I had to leave, to get, to find me. I couldn't let the hurt of that relationship destroy me or my son. I couldn't do it. And um, since then, they have gone to JH Ranch, both of them. They've experienced healing in their life. Not so much their father. It's still in a prayer thing. But the letter, I wrote him a letter, and I asked my stepdaughter to give it to him. They were going to California, and she said, okay. I said, if you want to, you don't have to, but here, somehow if you want to get him this letter, it was the letter I asked him to forgive me of things that I should have said a long time ago, and I never did. And I, of course, one time he made me very angry, and I said things out of I shouldn't have said, and that's haunted me that I said those things to him. So I wrote this letter asking him, please forgive me. And she had the letter. And the last day I believe she was in California, she called him and said, hey, can we meet for lunch or dinner or, you know, and he gave her some excuse. And she said, but I have a letter from Lynette for you. And he said, I'll be right there. And she was absolutely kind of blown away. So the daughters got together and had dinner with their dad. As she's holding this letter, she began to tell him how she felt, how he hurt her when she was young, and how she lived all of her life hurt because of the way he treated her. And she she became very bold with this letter in her hand. And the letter was a letter of forgiveness. And she gave it to him, and he opened it and looked at it. And she just said he looked at her in shock, put it in his back pocket. He goes, this is for, for me for later. So see, that was my way of letting it go and asking him to forgive me. Physically in the realm, no. Face to face, no. But it had to be my letter. I had to put those words to paper. And I had to finally lay it to rest. Because here I'd walk, I spoke all over the United States, my story, my testimony, and what it is to forgive. Yet I had this unforgiveness in my heart towards this relationship that I... I wanted to let it go. Did you tell him you forgave him? I did. In the letter, I did. I've not verbally spoke to that man for 25 years. Yeah, and I keep going back on forgiveness to the thing that has to happen inside of you, whether or not you have a conversation with the person that has wronged you. Because I, I believe forgiveness happens in your heart mm-hmm. um, more than anything else. And I heard a good analogy or, or way to describe what forgiveness is. Because, you know, you think about what forgiveness is. It's like, you know, um, accepting an apology or having an apology. And, and is, is that what it really is? And, and, and it's really not. And the, the, the words were to calculate what the person who uh, harmed you took from you or maybe better yet to sort of calculate in your mind or if you want to write it down, I guess, but in your mind what they owe you, right? What, 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 what did your grandfather owe you for what he did? What did your dad owe you for what he did? And you look at that and you think about that. You, you took my childhood. You owe me my childhood. Or you, you owe me a lifetime of compassion. And then you get to a place where you realize, I guess 
They can't do that. But even more importantly than that, that you get to a place where you say, I decide, I choose, that all the things that you owe me, you don't owe me anymore. You don't owe me that anymore mm-hmm. because I've decided that. And, and that's what Christ does for us, right? He could add up <laughs> the same things. You think about the things that we've done mm-hmm. and um, that that's a way to think about forgiveness. And if I can get to a place, and, and there, you know, I, people have people that they need to forgive. Mm-hmm. Everybody does for various degrees of stuff. And if you can think about it that way, it's like, what, what did that person take from me? What does that person owe me? And if I can get to a place where I can truly in my heart say, I decide you owe me nothing. You don't owe me that anymore. That that's getting to a place where you truly have forgiveness in your heart. And I think if you have a chance to have an encounter with someone and, and, and express that to them as well from your heart, in your facial expression and in your words or whatever, that that's a ni- that, that that's an excellent touch that kind of can put a, a a a punctuation on it, so to speak. But does that make sense on the forgiveness in your heart? Did you go through that process just on your own and with God, praying to God and say, "Hey, help me to forgive"? Because mm-hmm. I would think that to get to that place, it, it, it takes some probably uh, divine intervention to be able to get us to a place where we can really say, you don't know me that anymore. I think that um, God did take me to that place. Like I told you one person at a time, but in his timing. Yeah. Because I couldn't walk around here with unforgiveness and a broken heart anymore. My biggest thing was I had to heal my heart. And as I learned through, through going to church and learning about God and scripture that, you know what, the price was paid. There's nothing I can do to take back what my grandfather did to me. He passed away before I could ever say anything about forgiveness. My mother died in 2019. We buried her in Palm Springs, California. As I went to the funeral, she was buried next to her parents of all the things they have, they passed away mm. 45 years ago, but there was still a plot there. And um, as I walked up there, my heart was broken to even see his name. It kind of made me sick at the po- at the moment. But then I also said, you know what? It's okay, you know? I'm healed. I'm done because the price has been paid. Mm -hmm. He doesn't owe me anything. Nobody owes me anything. I had to be accountable for myself for things that I had to do. You know, my parents just couldn't love their children, and there's nothing I can do about that today. But I made a vow, as we do when we get when we have children. You know what? I will never treat my child the way I was treated. How did you grow in your faith from the time uh, of your encounter? Until now? I started going to, in uh, Downey, California, Calvary Chapel, which I loved. I began to go there, began to go to women's Bible studies. There was a specialty group there for sexual abuse survivors. I never heard of that before in a church, but I thought, okay, well, I'll go check it out. I loved it. I worked on the uh, board of ASCA, Adult Survivors of Child Abuse in Southern California, and we just talked about our experiences I think that helped me building blocks of, you know what, it happened and it's okay. We just have to go on and give it to God. I think of because my encounter in the mental ward that night, not too many things clung to me 
was more or less just kind of taken away. I didn't carry a lot of the, the burden. The hurt and the pain in my heart, I did. I think if the worst thing I had to deal with was still a broken heart. You know, that was one thing I had to struggle with a lot of my life. I learned a lot in Psalm 147.3 that I came to heal the brokenhearted and bind their wounds. That was my motto through my ministry. It's everywhere I have. It's on my desk. And um, it's just been a process. I had the wonderful advantage of going to the JH Ranch in 1999. And I had no idea the adventure I was going to be on. I had not a clue what it was about. I went there for the summer for a job and took my son. He was very young. I thought that would be fun. He can go run around and go on the lake and do what kids do at a camp. And You um, weren't going as campers. You were going as an employee, a staff. Staff. Yeah, I was the chef and the food service director at the JH Ranch. (laughs) And so um, I remember telling the owner, Okay, I'll do this, but for three months, I'm out of here. I'm going back home, you know. And I stayed for three years. And this is after your, after your convert, your episode convert slash conversion. Everything. It was after I even had my son. It was way after all that. I finally just had. I met the owner of a ranch. I was the food service director in a hotel in Lake Arrowhead, California, and he came to the hotel. And as God would have it, that's my journey began right there at that hotel. And as I went to the ranch. I began to watch and listen of things I'd never heard about Christ my whole life, not even since what had happened to me, nor did I speak of it. I just kept on going on in my life. And um, I would watch at the ranch, the dynamics as you go as a couple, as a husband-wife, as a father-daughter, as a mother-daughter, a mother-son. And I would listen to people in their sessions about the girls saying, oh, my dad's my best friend, you know, and I'm so, I was blown away. I said, your dad's your best friend. <laughs> Never heard of that before in my life. I was blown away that these men took two weeks out of their summer to go spend with their their daughter, their son, whatever the circumstances were, to help build this relationship on mending and healing in their family and their dynamics. I thought, these people are nuts. <laughs> and I just couldn't understand it in the beginning. Then I would go to the big top, and I'd listen to all the sessions that they had to say. Well, one happened to dig deep into my heart of the parent talk. And I sat there and listened to the owner of the ranch talk about different parents, those that are only performance oriented. You know, you don't get a, you know, a football scholarship, then you're not good enough. You know, those that are only academically, you know, get straight A son or you're never going to be anything, you know, and then he goes, and then there's those abusive parents. And I sat there going... And he talked about people that are physical abusive, you know, mental abusive, you know. Even, unfortunately, he goes, in our culture today, sexual abuse, because it happens all over. I never spoke to this man my whole life. didn't even really know who he was. And I began to listen to this, this talk, and I went, oh, my gosh. And I thought, first of all, I thought, you mean there's more people out there than me that this happened to? Mm. And I thought, surely not. You know, that that was my thinking was— this didn't happen to a lot of people. I can't believe this, you know? And as I listened to the talks and went through, you know, about salvation and this and that, and we had a few great things called dying moments and um, forgiveness, I began to understand more about the gospel of God and what God wanted to do in my life. And I went for three months and I stayed for three years. (laughs) Well, in that time, I think you had your own Increase of faith, right? Your faith walk Very much continued. so. And the owner of the ranch came to me about a year and a half out there, and he goes, I want, you to, I want you to tell your story. And I said, not on your life. He says, I want you to come up there with me. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. 
And the night that I walked down there to do it, he encouraged me. I literally threw up behind the hay bales because mm-hmm. I was so nervous and so sick to my stomach. I could not, I did not want people to know what I was. That scared me. That people would look at me like, oh my God, there's that lady, you know, and it, it bothered me. I just want people to know what they knew of me, that I was trying to, you know, I was a better person. And so um, that night I talked about my life and I talked about what God has done and how I began healing and how I began a process to work through my hurt and my pain and my devastation. And when we were all done, about 25 girls out of the audience came up to me and they said, I've been abused too. Mm. And it broke my heart. I knew then God had a plan for me. I knew then that night at JH Ranch that God was going to do something with my life. I knew that everything I had endured, the hurt, the pain, the sorrow, the brokenness, the abuse, it was going to be used for God's honor and glory. I knew that. How? I had no idea. When? Couldn't tell you that. But I knew that I knew that I knew that God was going to do this for me. Well, you became aware. And he did. Of others. Mm-hmm. In your boat. I became a voice yeah, of healing for people because he knew that one day I would take all, pack it all up that had happened to me and take it on the road and help other people with it. And that's exactly what I've done. Yeah. I think of the women in the, in the prison and, mm-hmm. and the amount of time you spent there and the people that you've connected with or that have connected with you through your story that have have seen God in a new way. And I think back on that night in the facility where you basically said, I'm going to need you to do this and this and this and this, and I'm going to need to be clean and I'm going to have a new life. And I'm going, how much of that stuff happened? All of it. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Because I mean, I, I, I think that when I spoke with God, this is the dynamics and the love of God. I wasn't in my right mind. I was angry. I was mad. Maybe he was telling you what he was going to do instead of you telling him what he was going to do. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Maybe he was telling you what he was going to do. And you didn't know what you were going to see and hear after that. Mm -hmm. I believe my supernatural meeting with God was peaceful, was love, was 29 years of what I never felt in my whole life happened in my room that night. Because you reached out. Because God knew that's what I needed. That's why he sent the angel, the beautiful, the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life and the love I felt and the warmth and just the, oh my gosh, God knew. He'd been trailing, he'd been tracking you. He'd been trailing you. He'd been, Joe, he's like, Joe, Joe. (laughs) Joe's like knocking on that door. And and, and, Joe, Joe, Joe. (laughs) All of it's a piece, right? All of it's a piece of it. All of it's a piece of the pursuit Mm -hmm. of Lynette. Mm -hmm. Every bit of it. Mm -hmm. And in that night in that moment his pursuit of you collided with your yeah. version of a pursuit <laughs> of him right yeah and, and 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 that's when it happened it all sprang forth from that it, it it's amazing and beautiful how instant a change happens mm-hmm. the full change doesn't happen no. in the instant right no. in some cases it does but over time you changed exactly like you said, he said, in that moment, that you were going to. It's amazing to me. So with all of that, how do you describe God? God to me is a friend. He's comfort. He's love. I was asked one time, do you see your heavenly father like you saw your earthly father? 
Yes, in the beginning I did. I thought he was a vengeful God. I don't think that anymore. He was the God when I was a runaway in the streets. He's the one that kept me warm at night. He's the one that provided for me when I was tired and hungry. That's the God I know today. The God that loves me, that held me. When I had my stroke, I should have died. But I didn't. He's restored my mind. I still have a traumatic brain injury. I accept that. He's restored everything that the locusts have eaten. He's given me tenfold back. He gave me a child. I was told I could never have a children. I had many miscarriages. That's just a gift. I call these gifts. My job today is a gift from God to work with the kids that I work with. It's a gift. And I understand. God's my friend. He knows I'm hurting when I'm hurting, when I'm broken, when I'm broken. He knows, and He loves me. And I'm a daughter today. I could never say that before. I'm a daughter. And today, because God is my friend, I'm a mother, I'm a sister, I try everything with God by my side, because He's my friend now. I can't explain to you how life is, but I just know that God is with me all the time. I know. That's a 180-degree reversal from what you saw him as mm-hmm. when you were 18 years old. He was the cause. He was the one who allowed the pain and allowed, you know, that, that, that had a child on the street. Mm-hmm. But to look at it now and say, no, he was the one that was keeping me warm and alive. That's a, that's a big transition. But I believe it now. Yeah. You can see it, though, can't you? Mm-hmm. So many things. I shouldn't be alive today. But you know what? That's not what God had planned for me. God said, I will take what's bent and broken, and I will make it straight. And I will give you a voice, and you will speak, and people will listen. And I believe that today. And when you go into, so when you go into these prisons and other places, is that your message? I mean, what is your message to these other girls, women that you encounter that are just broken kids, discarded kids. Do you have a message? What is that? First, I try and tell people it's not their fault. Because for 30 years, I thought it was my fault because I was a bad child. It's not your fault. And to find forgiveness in that. And second of is, anybody can be healed of a broken heart if you believe Healing can prevail to anybody. It is no respecter of gender. It is no respecter of racial, racial, nothing. Healing is for everybody, every person, human being, every race on this earth, as long as you believe and you reach out for it. One thing in the, in the jails that really bothered me is the women say, well, meet so-and-so. She's a habitual offender. No, you're not. It's just a word somebody gave you. You're not a habitual offender. No such thing. Like I wasn't a bad kid. I wasn't a worthless little girl. That's just a word, a phrase they gave me. I was really a person. And once they find that healing inside them, that you know what? Your brokenness makes us act on things we do that happen to be bad and get you in trouble. It's your brokenness and your hurt that does it, not because you're a habitual offender. And you just have to Show people that healing can prevail. And forgiveness. It's, I didn't say it was easy, did I? No, because 25-year-old... Never said it was easy. 25-year-old Lynette would have said, you're full of crap. And then some. 
It ain't easy. Yeah, I, don't, I can't. I don't want to put the explicit tag on the <laughs> podcast. We can't. Do, no. But if yeah. we could, and dot, I could, dot 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 dot. Have said something else there. But twenty five year old. I mean, what you described to me. Yeah. I mean, you were kind in your words to Joe. Oh yeah. About Jesus loves you. Yeah, that's a crock of you know. And I wanted to beat him up, but yeah. So how how do you, the people take that when you tell them that? Just that I tell them. That's what I was, because that's what hurt does to you. Hurt molds you into something you're not. Yeah. When forgi- forgiveness and healing and prayer and belief molds you into this, what you are, what they saw of me today. So when I speak, I always say, the person you see today is not what God touched, my friend. <laughs> oh, no. You know, he touched a battered, broken, ugly, addicted, per- a shell of a woman who had been destroyed. As a tornado, I had gone through life, and unfortunately, I left a path of destruction behind me. Yeah, but you, it wasn't like you were here and then destroyed. It was like you never had, a, you, you never felt loved. You never felt uh, valued. Correct. It wasn't like you felt valued, and then all of a sudden, it was cut out from under you. It's like you never had that. And I think what we have to do, and what you, you have to do, and what you must be doing is all you can say really about somebody else's situation is like, I can only tell you what he did for me. Correct. I can only tell you where I came from. I can only express the fact that I said the same things. I I, I was convinced that I couldn't be loved, that I didn't have value, Mm -hmm. that I was worthless. It's all I'd ever know, but I'm just going to tell you, here's what he did for me. And that's what you're doing. Exactly. I'm just conveying love of what God had done to me. Even though you are this way, you're what you're broke and your pain and your hurt has molded you to. Yeah. You don't have to end up like that. Yeah. I had a very sad, pathetic life, but if I had to do it again for somebody else to be healed, I would live it again. Really? Oh, yeah. Mm. I don't think that I was born for such drastic sadness. I don't think that. I just think it, it, it happened. You know, it happened. And I have no regrets whatsoever now. It made me who I am. And the strength I told you as a child yeah. is what's endured me all of my life. And the strength I have as a woman, that's what's endured me. Now I know why God gave me that strength as a child. He knew I would need it in my older years now for the life and the ministry that I have. He knew that, and he in- embedded so much strength in me. Yeah. Unbelievable as a child. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you are have let go of the pain of your past as it has dragged you down before? Oh, absolutely. I mean, people ask me a lot, do you ever think about it? Yeah. Well, what was my life? Mm-hmm. You know, pictures or this or that, you know, I things I have that, you know, bring back memories, but I no longer dwell on that anymore. You know what? It, it happened and it's done and it's over. But today I'm who I am because of those building blocks Mine were just a little tougher than others, yeah. but yeah, I'm past it. I don't, you know, don't linger on it. Don't really talk about it like this. Don't really expound on, oh my God, I was an abused child and this happened to me. No, only when I speak, when God calls me yeah. like this, God called me to come here or I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. If I'm asked to go speak, I went and just spoke at Wheaton Bible College in front of 3,000 people. Thought I was going to faint on the stage, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, I did it, you know, because God called me to go do that. You know, so no, I don't have, mm -mm. 
I have no no bad feelings towards nothing that's happened in my life, nor anyone, and that is the gospel truth. Well, that that's a sign that you've truly forgiven, right? Yeah. You, you, you've, you've accepted the gift that God has reached down and uh, grabbed you and pulled you from. And, Correct. Um, I think that was where I was going with that. Okay. How do you feel? Today? Mm-hmm. I feel great. <laughs> You know, today's a good day. You know, Jesus touched me at church this morning. You know, I had a moment last week, and um, today's a good day. I would think it'd be free, freedom from all that stuff. It is. And empowerment to go and have a purpose for the kingdom. That's very true. I'll see my older sister's coming this weekend to visit. I'm excited to see her. She's been in Georgia for quite a while, and we're just going to go out and spend some time and it's going to be a good day. It's amazing to see all those things that were said that night happen mm-hmm. over time. It's like, here you are. If you look back at that, if you could, I, I, I think probably that night you probably said, there's no way that's happening. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> no way. And here you are, mm-hmm. just like you said, just like you said. You know, it's been a it's been a long road, you know, and I know I have a lot more road to travel. I have a book to write. I know that. I've begun. And why I never finished it was because my parents were still living, and I promised I would never, ever, ever dishonor my parents through this book. So I'm going to still possibly tap into that and, you know, write my book and Good. see where it goes from there, just to, whatever. But, you know, I just want to live free. And, you know, if I if I never, ever, ever had a chance to speak again and share, that's okay. Because God's given me everything I've ever needed, and then some. Yeah. I have no regrets whatsoever. You'll never hear me say that. My son has never heard me in all of these years say any regrets about my life, where I've come from. God's been good to me. Very, very good. Things I don't even deserve. Yeah. Rough start, but a great ending. <laughs> <laughs> a little bumpy road in the beginning, but it's a great smooth road now. <laughs> yeah, that that's awesome. And to... Um love to be able to have a video recording of that right there and go back and show that 27-year-old woman. Mm. It's like, this is, this, is, pretty. this is what you're going to say down Wasn't the road. pretty. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, Lynette, thanks for coming in here and sharing. You've got such a powerful story, and you came from such a dark place, and uh, God just... God just pulled you right up out of there. And when I look at that, he is in pursuit of us, and we all know that. But but you reached up. You said, I, 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 some of the reaches were swings. I get it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I, I just think that he has to be saying, yes, finally, she's looking at me. And from then it changed. Then he proved as faithful as he promises us that he is. And I just get so encouraged every time I hear that. I, I, I've not heard someone tell me, I reached out to God and nothing happened. I haven't heard that yet. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard that yet. I just heard too many times I'd reached out expecting nothing to happen and everything changed. What a faithful and powerful and unbelievably mighty God we serve. That's correct. It just gives me the chills. It just it gives me the chills and it makes me just want to avert my eyes because he's just too big and he's just too amazing and it just, it's exciting and I just am so humbled every time I just consider the magnitude of who he is. 
and the fact that 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 kind of love exists is just uh, it's just unreal. Lynette San Diego. Thank you. Lynette Samaniego endured what very few of us could imagine. But she reached out to God, and he broke in as Lynette could never have dreamed. God never promised that life would be easy. He does promise his presence, and that he pursues us. He also promises that he's faithful to us, and that he loves us more than we will ever understand. Lynette is safe now. She's living in peace, and is doing work she describes as a gift as she points thousands to the God that gave her rest. Praise God. Thank you for joining us today on A Stronger Faith. This week, I'd ask that we pray for those who are in the darkest places. Pray that God continues His pursuit of them and that He breaks into their hearts such that they turn and reach for Him. Until next time, we pray for peace, and a stronger faith for you and those you love.